water. Yo, what is going on everyone? How y'all doing? Welcome to another episode of the Sound of Water podcast. Hope everyone is staying safe, healthy, and most importantly, staying hydrated. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today's recording is actually the first episode of our second season in which we will be transitioning to Asian and Asian American issues. And before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to open with some facts regarding the current global water crisis. According to unwater.org, nearly half of the global population is already living in potential water scarce areas at least one month per year. And this could increase to some 4.8 to 5.7 billion people in 2050. And about, 20, about 73% of the affected people currently live in Asia. About 4 billion people, which represents about two thirds of the world's population, experience severe water scarcity during at least one month of the year. And by 2030, about 700 million people worldwide could be displaced by intense water scarcity by 2030. Um, according to the World Health Organization, in the context of emergencies, displaced people are people who have had to leave their homes as a result of a natural, technological, or deliberate event. So those are some facts about our current global water crisis. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm David, your co-host. I have with me, as always, my homeboy, my co-host, Josh. What's going on, man? Is that me? Is that me? Is this where I go in? (laughs) Man, I'm so pumped for this, bro. I'm so pumped for this new season. Very, very happy with how things have gone. I am uh, very surprised that Asian people are struggling with water the most. So thanks for enlightening me there. So let's uh, let's jump into this. We got a very special guest for this one, huh? Do the honors, man. Tell us who it is. All right. I got to make sure I don't butcher this. Grace Soyeon Moon. (laughs) Welcome. She is a freelance journalist, researcher, and producer based in Seoul, South Korea. She's had uh, work published in places like NBC News, BBC, Vice News, Public Radio International, NPR, South China Morning Post, Radio Canada, and more. Right now, she's working part-time as a copy editor at the Korea Jung-Ang Daily which is an English language daily published by the Jung-Ang Group, Korea's leading media group in association with the New York Times. She's also serving as a sole correspondent for Reporters Without Borders. And she's a proud member of the Asian American Journalist Association's Seoul Chapter, where you currently serve as the social media director. So welcome, welcome, Grace. That is good. That is good. (laughs) Yes, super excited for this, man. Thank you for it's joining. Gonna be, yeah, thank you, thank you so much. Well, uh, well, I gave my little intro. Um, how about you just uh, dive in a little bit more? Who is who is Grace Soyeon Moon? And uh, <laughs> talk about a, a little bit about who you are. I mean, I think you, I think you hit almost everything. But um, like Josh said, I, I've been in Seoul for. I just hit my one year anniversary mark. Um, I came about a year ago from, I was based in New York and Dallas. And that's how I met actually David and Josh in Dallas. And now I wear a lot of hats. I, I, I guess I'm a freelance journalist, but I also um, work on research projects and um, video projects. And like Josh said, I'm a part-time evening copy editor right now at a local daily here. That is a lot of hats. 
How's that going for you? <laughs> uh, I think, yeah, I need to, I've realized that I'm really bad at time management, but it's going okay. <laughs> yeah, you're all right. I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of just like keep stacking stuff on and then you'll just kind of, you'll kind of figure it out. <laughs> yeah, just until you crash and burn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the motto. That's the motto. Well, uh, how about uh, just just dig a little bit into some of your uh, your past? Like, so how did you get into journalism and what what prompted you to move to Korea? That's a pretty big change. I mean, you are Korean American, though, but even just moving and living abroad is, is pretty big. Yeah. So, I mean, I was born I was born in the States in California, lived in Dallas for most of my life. And then I went to study journalism in New York City um, and I. I did do, do some freelance journalism there, but not to this extent. And I remember I entered university interested in, you know, communications, but it wasn't really a good fit for me. So I started getting involved in some local Asian American activism and community organizing around my sophomore year. And that's when I worked with an amazing organization called CAV, which stands for Committee Against Anti-Asian Violence. And there, uh, my Korean was not that good, but I could communicate with the elderly. So I worked with public housing in New York City um, with NYCHA, the New York City Public Housing Authority. And there were elderly Korean tenants in these public housing facilities. Um, and the conditions they were living in were really um, upsetting. There was mold on the ceiling, mold on the floor, and this is illegal. So. Um, Korean speaking people like me would go in, check it out, take pictures of their places, and then talk to the um, housing authorities and then try to work something out. Sometimes we, we'd go to court with them or go to um, just accompany them and translate um, them and make sure that their housing conditions improved. Um, and I really enjoyed it. Like it was really hard work and like physically and emotionally taxing, but I, I did enjoy that documentation process. And then I started writing a bit, like just free writing on my own. And then, you know, I attended some protests um, that these communities organized about, um, I'm not sure if you guys remember, but I think a few years ago, Jesse Waters from Fox News, he did this yeah. Chinatown segment. Um, Terrible. E. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, I remember yeah. that. Yeah, you guys Wait, I'm, I'm, I don't know that. Can you can you just oh give me a little? Goodness. Yeah, what what happened there? I mean, it was a while ago, but it, in like in a nutshell, he like Jesse Waters, the host, ventures into Chinatown, and he. Oh snap! <laughs> I actually think I remember that. Yeah, yeah. And he started like interviewing. He was really insensitive. These, yeah, yeah, like these with, older Asians who obviously who did not know in. what was going on. Yeah. yeah, and it was just he was just mocking them and asking them really difficult like political questions in English. They didn't know what they were saying, and then he would just kind of like laugh about it. And, you know, played on these really terrible stereotypes and knowing he knew that they wouldn't comprehend fully and that they weren't comfortable answering, but um, proceeded and kind of set up the scene to mock them. Um, and so that was a big controversy in New York City, especially. So there was a protest. I remember I was like scrolling through my Twitter and I saw it. And so I like grabbed my camera and I ran to, I think it was around Midtown. Um, mm. And I started recording it, I started taking notes, and then I realized, hey, like, you know, is this journalism? It's kind of fun, I kind of want to try <laughs> it. And I switched, I like declared my major, 
and I ended up really liking it. Um, so that's how I got into journalism. I forgot what the other question was. No, that was good. I like that. Yeah. Well, I guess, uh, yeah, how it, how it moved you to Korea. Oh, okay. there. No, I don't know how I got here. I'm just, I was actually <laughs> be back home by now, but I'm still here. Um, I came here because I was interested in North Korea. Uh, my grandma, my, my paternal grandma and my maternal grandpa. So I have one grandparent from each side who's from North Korea. Um, oh, wow. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. Yeah. So my, my dad's mom is from Pyongyang, which is the you know capital. And then my mom's dad is from Kaesong, which is another major city. And I mean... We say North Korea, but at the time it was the northern peninsula of Korea. There was right. Korea one. Yeah. Um, and you'd be surprised at how many people still don't know this because they asked me if I'm from North or South Korea. <laughs> um, but yeah. yeah, so from an early age, I was, my grandma especially, I used to cook with her a lot. And when we make like North Korean dishes, she'd tell me about her childhood. And it was really different from the perceptions that I saw in the media kind of mocking like Kim Jong-il you know, the memes, the propagandistic memes that were going around. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I was active in college around North Korean, like community awareness and like um, hosting educational events about North Korea in a more humanistic light. Um, but I, I came here through a fellowship to work at a local NGO, North Korean NGO. So it was a radio organization. And I liked it because it was defector led. Um, and so the defector, the president was a defector and he, I mean, I really respected his opinions and yeah. leadership because um, it was his lived experiences. And so basically in a nutshell, what we did was we produce these educational programs, these radio programs, and um, they were transmitted through shortwave radio signals to North Korea. Oh, no way. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, That's I read- crazy. Yeah, it, it was wild. And it's hard. This kind of work is hard because we don't have any statistics. We don't know how many listeners we have. Um, Maybe one or 200. But our only evidence is that people, people who have defected have come and been like, hey, um, I listened to your show when I was in North Korea. Wow. And so yeah, those testimonies are really powerful. And I think that's what's keeping us going. And I, I ran a like I ran a really fun show when I was there. I pitched the idea of a North Korean kind of cuisine show. So um, I mean, I entered journalism interested in being like a, a food and culture journalist. And I yeah, so I basically it's it was called North Korean Culinary Journey. And that radio program, I go around Seoul, Busan, other cities in South Korea, find North Korean chefs and home cooks and talk to them. I'd like kind of peek behind their shoulder and watch them cook and then ask them like their life stories through the food that they're making. Mm. Um, Sorry, that was a long explanation. That's what brought me to Korea. No, I Uh, love that. That's really, I didn't know that you had that North Korean kind of connection there with your family. Yeah. Like till this, to this date, one of my like favorite pieces I've ever written is probably one that I wrote for Food 52 about you know Pudechige, army base mm-hmm. dude mm-hmm. that's good mm-hmm. that's yeah good. it's bomb, it's bomb. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. it's like 
um, it's for like listeners who don't know, like kimchi, which is like a spicy, pickle, spicy cabbage. So it's kimchi stew, but there's a lot more in it. A lot of Western influences like baked beans, um, you know, ramen noodles, cheese, um, sausage, spam. And like, I grew up eating this, but um, I mean, you guys can link it in this podcast later, but mm-hmm. I like my grandma, like never wanted to eat it. And I didn't really understand why. And then the, the piece basically goes into how that dish for her was a symbol of trauma because it symbolized the Korean mm. war and her lived experiences. Um, it also goes into how, like, regardless, like she still made pudichiki for me because it was her love for me. And so that place is really hard to read, hard to write, but um, mm. yeah, also how I got to know my grandma more. Yeah, beautiful. That's, yeah, that's crazy because I think what you were saying earlier about like, especially in America, how North Korea is depicted by the media and um, in Hollywood, like like stupid movies, like The Interview, you know, mm. like just like one of the dumbest movies ever made in my opinion. Um, but, and I think there is a lot of like misconception about how we perceive North America or North, North Korea. Um, so what, what do you think is one of the main misconceptions that you've observed through working at that NGO about North Korean people and also just North Korea as a country, I guess? Well, I do think that the media discourse has changed a lot since like when I was in middle school. Um, yeah, when I was in middle school, the only thing that surfaced right when people thought about North Korea was that was Kim Jong-il basically. And there were so many memes. I remember that. And besides yeah. that, there was like not that much. It was just a joke, basically, like a online meme joke. Um, but I think that um, actually through since, you know, Trump was elected, like he was the first sitting U.S. president to like go into North Korea and like, you know, have like a sitting um, that like the Hanoi summit was a big um, spectacle. And I think after that, people started being interested in North Korea a little bit more on a deeper level and they started paying attention. And so when I was organizing events on North Korea on campus um, a few years ago, um, I don't know, it was really interesting to see how random people would just come and attend our events because they were interested in North Korea more than just a media spectacle. And they actually wanted to know um, the humanistic side of that story. Um, I still think there are a lot of misconceptions and um, it's been really interesting living in Seoul as I'm not even South Korean, I'm like a Korean American. They call us Gyopo or overseas Koreans. Um, And that's another story, but um, how there are so, it's been interesting to see how like there are geographical clusters of vector communities in Seoul and how they're still kind of, I mean, not kind of, they're still very much socially isolated. Um, and yeah, I read a lot about that. Like uh, they, they're not very welcome when they come to South Korea, they're seen as like different and they're not, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it's cool because now a lot of the younger defectors are they are sharing their stories on like, they're like YouTube stars, basically, and they have a lot of subscribers. Wow. So that's really cool. That's but crazy. yeah, but the, but the reality is that, you know, they're still very much socially kind of a social, they're a social minority, obviously. But um, yeah, there's still a lot of like North Korean women who are taken advantage of here 
um, on because a lot of them go through China and they there's like sex trafficking manipulation a lot of bad stuff that are still going on and a lot of people don't know that this is going on um, but yeah I don't know it's uh, did you guys read that pub piece that I did I'm not sure because that one kind of goes into yeah so, yeah there was this um, there was this North Korea themed pub in Hongdae right yeah it was in yeah, Hongdae which is in Western Seoul yeah so that's like so Hongdae is like one of them it's a it's like a college um, it's like a college area in in Seoul and it's known for being like a very uh, like it's like a place for partying basically it's like where all the bars are it's like if you want to go out for a night of fun that's like a very um, well-known area that you go and, and play and have fun and I was browsing the article a little bit um, about um, I think what was it called Pyongyang pub yeah it was called Pyongyang pub yeah so if you could just go into like what what that pub was like and you know what what are your thoughts on that yeah um I, I keep it short but basically in Hongdae I a few media outlets had reported on it and I thought it was kind of weird like my first impression was like this is kind of weird um it's in the smack middle so Hongdae is like known as the streets of the youth so like David said there are a lot of like Hongik universities right there so they have college students like bars pubs clubs flashing lights really crazy but then like in the smack middle of the road there was this north korean um <laughs> it's yeah i think it's hard to describe but it's it looked so like an, like an anachronism almost it was just so outdated yeah. old north korean like flamboyant um building with like this like propagandistic like picture of a woman being like welcome to pyongyang pub or whatever um <laughs> And so I walked by it and I was like, this is so weird. And there was like North Korean, like upbeat music blasting from the speakers. So contrast that with like modern Korean rap, it just didn't fit very well. Yeah. And so I wanted to write a story about it, but I, it was just such a colorful piece. And so I wanted to, so I, I ended up doing like a written piece, but also a radio piece, which was really fun. And I took pictures. Um, and I just wanted to talk to the owner and be like, so like, I knew that he wasn't North Korean. So I was like, so dude, like you're South Korean. Like, why did you want to make this North Korean pub? And what makes you feel entitled to like do something like this? Um, and so basically, yeah, the piece goes into how like I sit, I, so I went with a North Korean defector because I didn't feel like I could go alone. Mm. I'm not North Korean. Like I can't compare it to anything. Um, so I went with a North Korean woman and we went as customers and we ordered everything on the menu and we tried it. And I just asked her like, what do you think of these dishes? Blah, blah, blah. Did they do their homework? Um, and we later sat down with the owner and they, they were in conversation too. Wow. Um, but yeah, it was a bit sus on his end. <laughs> it sounds a little sus. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what did the owner say? Like, what did, did the owner give, um, uh, response like did he want to did he want to talk to you how did that yeah, conversation I was, go I wasn't really surprised because he was like yeah like I'll talk to you so I was like okay um, that was seems a little bit too easy um, <laughs> but he man like so basically he had that pub was a Japanese izakaya kind of mm, okay but then you know 
around that time, which is, I don't, I can't remember when it was, but it was a while ago last year when I was still like in winter, but Japan Korea tensions were at an all time high. And it was to the point where like people were like boycotting Japanese products. And I think because of that political situation, he kind of shifted gears. Um, it's like, let's make it North Korean. That's, <laughs> that's what we'll do. That'll fix it. <laughs> yeah, when he was telling me, I was just like, man, I can't believe you're telling me this. And like, we're on the record right now. Um, <laughs> but in respect, whatever, he's a businessman and he says he's a businessman. He's been in the industry in Hongdae for a while. Um, but he basically, he was like, you know, I just wanted to create a space where people could have fun. Um, but you know, obviously the defector I went with was kind of critical about that, but I think there was a lot of good conversation ultimately. Um, but it still goes to show the reality of how a lot of South Koreans view, um, North Korean, mm, enter kind North Korea is kind of like, oh, something that's like cool or entertaining rather mm. than them being not our brothers and sisters across the way yeah. kind of thing I, I wanted to segue into that I'm glad you mentioned that I like how because I, I absolutely agree with you that the U.S. public perception is kind of like memes and North Korea is like <laughs> I dare I say rocket man David <laughs> <laughs> and like but with South Korea is that the same like do they take like what what is their perception of it cuz i got to say that that like that pub isn't isn't the best example right there yeah that pub you know i mean i do think it is it portrays how um, cuz i think so in the middle of our interview at pyongyang pub um, i got really emotional near the end of it and i was like whoa i don't know why i'm crying but i'm crying um, and we were both crying cuz she was telling me that like um, like she looks around at the pub and there are a lot of South Koreans just drinking and having fun in this kind of glamorous North Korean space. Um, that's obviously not for North Koreans. It's for South Koreans and foreigners. Um, and everyone, like I remember looking around in the pub and everyone was like not North Korean or at least like I, she could tell. And, um, and I was like, I asked her like, how does this make you feel? And she was just saying that she doesn't really feel anything anymore. Um, she's just really used to it. And um, she said that when she came to South Korea at first, um, she was really excited and giddy. And like, she had heard that like, you know, kind of like how for immigrants, like America is a land of opportunity for like a lot of North Korean defectors, like South Korea was you know, where they could begin a new life, you know, make money, live a new life for themselves, but that's not the reality. And in the end, she says that um, it became easier to just kind of shut her mouth and be quiet. Um, and a lot of her emotions hardened and she, all that expect, all those expectations kind of faded and she suddenly began to feel nothing. So even when she mm. looks at this like Pyongyang pub, she feels nothing. I don't know. And that made me really sad. Um, but I think it does that kind of that soundbite shows the reality of a lot of how North Korean defectors feel. Um, and they, do, they don't even really care about Pyongyang pub. I thought they would be like offended, but they're like, yeah, we don't really <laughs> feel anything. Mm. Somehow that's even harder to swallow. It's like, yeah. not not enough emotional battery to like, use on that well 
So, so you said that the North Korean defectors, they have this like almost American dream-esque of coming to South Korea. Like what are the kinds of things that, that break that down for them when they come here and they're like, oh, it's, it's really not like that. I think a lot of it was the social isolation she felt. Like kind of like, I, this wasn't her, but another defector that I interviewed a while back said when she first came, she wanted to work at a restaurant in South Korea. And the moment like that, she opened her mouth because there, you know, there's obviously North Korean dialect. And um, at first I had a really hard time understanding the dialect. My grandparents are from North Korea, but they don't have this dialect anymore because they came, you know, they crossed the border during the war. So when they were like 13 or 14, so they're basically like, you know, you could say they're South Korean. Um, but for the people who defected recently, they have, a, they have a North Korean dialect. And so when she was applying to work at this restaurant, the manager was like, we don't want to hire you. Um, and she was saying that a lot of this happens often for defectors who are applying to jobs, um, who get shut down, who are excluded. Um, but I think the overall consensus was that it is getting better gradually. And as, yeah, and as younger North Koreans kind of um, step forward and share their stories. And a lot of these defectors, like there are a lot of resources for North, like, um, like people like me to teach English to North Korean defectors. And as these communities are growing, um, it's becoming, their narratives are becoming more mainstream, which is good. Um, and, you know, after the Hanoi summit, um, their, or the Panmunjom summit, like their North Korean food, like the cold, cold noodles, like North Korean naengmyeon. Mm-hmm. Um, like that's also becoming, that was like, that blew up. Um, well, they have, well, North Koreans have their own naengmyeon? Yeah, it's I called. I heard it's so good. Word? Wow. Yeah. It's called Pyongyang. So Pyong, Pyongyang, the capital, mm-hmm. and then Neng, which is naengmyeon. So Pyongyang is what it's Gr- called. Grace, have you tried it? Uh, I've been to like, I think 20 different Pyongyang restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> How is it? Well, actually, like a lot of people don't like it or, or not really, like it, but it takes a while for it to kind of grow on you because North Korean mm. food is more mild and like almost bland for some people. Mm. Um, because, you know, like this, their cuisine, it's based off of survival and sustenance. Good point. Yeah. But um i love it like (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's cold it's a bit the broth is blander but it's the flavors are really deep um but yeah there are so many Pyongyang restaurants now and it's like a mainstream food now which is cool Mm. so so with north korea you're saying that the public perception is is gradually getting better but how is like the i would say more the national media reception like does that make sense not just the people, but more so like, uh, how are the news reporting on North Korean relations with them and stuff like that? Um, I think for at least like Western outlets, um, I mean, it's still very much focused on Trump, Kim, Kim, Trump. What does Trump think of Kim? Mm. What right to Trump in this letter? Um, but at the same time, I do see like some stories of, you know, some more nuanced stories feature stories that touch on the human lives of people like for example I forgot where I think it was like AP or Reuters that published a piece recently on like a 
North Korean and South Korean couple and how they navigate those social dynamics. So I don't know, when I see pieces like that, I'm like, okay, like, this is a really good story. Mm. And not about just, well, everything's political, but it's not about, you know, like the involving Trump and Kim. And like Kim has, the Kim dynasty obviously has been like the face of North Korea for so long. And the, its people have been defined by these, these this line of leaders. Um, but yeah, I do, I do feel like as someone in the media, I do see the public perception changing um, gradually, albeit gradually. Mm. I like that. I always like, I always like hope and positive progress. It's always, <laughs> feels so good. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's crazy because my, my parents used to tell me all the time that like, despite what people say about North Korea, we have to remember that they're still Korea, you know? Um, and it's more sensitive for like my parents' generation too. Cause, um, you know, they, when they were growing up, their, their parents, so like my grandparents now felt the effect of when there was the split between North and South Korea, you know, like families were lost, generations of families were split. Um, I mean, the entire country was just divided in two. Um, and I don't think we're like that far removed, you know, that was like what, after 1950, right? Around that time. Yeah, um, so what is that? Only 70 years ago, this all happened. Um, so I don't know. And I remember I took a Korean class in college and we had this open debate about whether we think the reunification of the two Koreas would ever happen. And one of the biggest debates was, um, it's, it's exactly what you're talking about, Grace, like the social um, acceptance of North Koreans into South Korea, because South Korea is so like advanced um, and the society changes so quickly with its culture, you know, like the, the, the different fads come and go so quickly. Um, so I don't know, um, integrating an entire population of people who, I don't know, have just been in the dark and just kind of brainwashed for generations must be kind of tough, you know? Yeah. And, you know, like in America, a lot of people have the America first mindset. Yeah. Um, like, unfortunately, I do see like iterations and versions of this kind of South Korea first mindset here sometimes. Um, and that like, you know, like, even if we do re like um, unify, like, you know, what is, how is this going to affect the South Korean economy? How is this going to affect South mm. Korean market? Blah, blah, blah. Um, and one thing that I, that's been kind of like daunting to me as I worked um, in the North Korean NGO field is that um, the older generations, like my grandma and people around that age, they have the living memory of the war. And, you know, like the North Korean issues are more familiar to them because they lived through this. But when it comes to younger people who have no like personal lived experiences, most of them are apathetic. And it's ironic that we were so close to North Korea, but even when there's like a missile test launch, like no one flinches and no one really cares. Um, and they are just so detached and removed from it. Um, so I'm hoping that this new wave of younger North Korean defectors um, active on social media kind of lead the discourse. But in general, the young, the youth, South Korean youth are very much apathetic and detached from it all. It's kind of sad. This is very sad. <laughs> well, as much as I think this North Korean talk is interesting, you have so many interesting stories that I want to dig into here. Um, 
I know that you did a lot of stuff for COVID, right? With uh, South Korea did like a big, like they were, I think they were one of the first ones to kind of flatten the curve and get things under control. Yeah, and they also had like that crazy um, the Shinjunji. Yeah, the the wave of cases because of the Shinjunji church. Thing. Yeah, yeah. So Grace, I know you did a story about um, about that, and you went down to Tegu um, to report on that. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Oh, man, I did so much COVID reporting when I was bad here. Um, but actually, that's how I kind of fell into freelancing. So the North Korean NGO work I was doing, that was through the fellowship. And that, unfortunately, was terminated in March when COVID was really bad mm. in South Korea. Um, and yeah, they canceled the program. So I was like, shit, like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know what to do. Like, that was my one source of income and why I was in Korea. But now it got terminated, like, overnight. And so... Um, I didn't have time to apply for jobs even. So I just started freelancing like crazy. And I started writing and reporting full time as a freelancer. And I was really lucky because um, there the demand for freelancers in South Korea was really high then because of all the stuff that was happening with COVID. And so a lot of editors wanted these stories. And so um, I got lucky. Honestly, and I start, I had the opportunity to write for NBC News about this COVID piece about how South Korea flattened its curve. And um, after that, you know, one thing led to another. And um, I started working with more editors. And the yeah, the, the Shinchenji whole thing. So Shinchenji is like a secretive, like religious sect, or some people called it a cult. And they were in this city outside of Seoul called Daegu. And I actually went there. <laughs> a lot of people like said I was out of my mind for going there. <laughs> the peak. But honestly, like I was just so curious and I was dying to go there myself. Because um, I'd read all these like horror stories of Daegu and there was like a ghost horror stricken city. Um, and the social stigma against Daegu was really bad then. Um, and even it was to the point where like you're you're out and about and someone's you ask like oh like where in Korea are you from and they say Daegu and you take a step back and you're like oh my gosh get away from me um, um yeah it was I'm even exaggerating a bit but that was the gist of the social atmosphere then and um I went to Daegu to shoot a documentary for this um tv channel and um it was really cool but I didn't like being really honest I didn't really like their angle um, like the producer wasn't here, they were abroad, um, but they wanted to focus on Shincheonji, the cult, and kind of paint an empty ghost city that's, um, mm. you know, that's been hit by this cult, you know, coronavirus <laughs> kind of narrative. Yeah. And at first, before I went, I was like, okay, well, we can do that. We'll shoot the shots and whatever. But then I went, I went to Daegu, I took the train and I was like, what the, like, like things are empty, but it's not about Shincheonji. Um, and I talked to like florists, I talked to medical workers, doctors, coffee shop owners, camera people, like a lot of the local members. And I just asked them like, do you feel like, anger towards Shinchenji? How do you feel about it all? How do you feel about the coronavirus in your city? And a lot of them were expressed no 
actually anger towards Shinchenshi, and they just said that you know what's happened has happened, but we have to move forward. And if anything, they were more focused on more focused on like salvaging the local businesses and their friends who operated the local businesses in the area. Um, and I don't know. Again, like it was really touching the stories that they shared. Um, they would like the cop, like for example, the coffee shop owner and the florist. They were right next to each other, and so the coffee shop owner would buy her flowers from that shop and the flower shop owner would buy her coffee from that shop every morning to help them keep going. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know, I saw that. And then I was like, Shinchanji isn't the story of this city. It's more about how they are um, building themselves back up despite wow. being struck by the coronavirus. And um, so, yeah, I ended up writing a piece for South China Morning Post on this about how the city is dealing with coping with the social stigma. Um, so yeah, that was a really meaningful piece. And Daegu was a lot of fun and I want to go back. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. So man, it sounds like that other producer was just trying to promote like a narrative that they wanted to promote. Wasn't really reflecting the reality of what was going on there. Yeah, I don't like, uh, like, I, I don't think they had bad intentions. I mean, they weren't there. And if they were just like, you know, scanning media and the media was in, in overall, the media was reporting on Daegu and like that kind of light. So I don't want to blame that person. But mm. and also it was for TV, which is more glamorized. Um, but yeah, that definitely, from my perspective, and what I saw that wasn't the story. So I know a little bit about the Shincheonji and how they were spreading the virus. And I think I read somewhere that a lot of the members of the Shincheonji group, they were in like China around the time COVID was spreading like crazy. And they came back and didn't, didn't mention how they were in China. And they were, um, I don't know if this is 100% correct. And you can correct me, like, they're almost purposefully spreading this virus. Is that correct? Um, like, what was the deal with them just kind of like, going like you know like spreading this virus like crazy I mean, it's hard to say because you know it's hard to distinguish like what's real and what's not mm -hmm. and, like it's just a rumor or what is actually what happened all i know is that it was really surreal because i shinjanji was painted as like a horror and then i was standing right in front of the actual church in daegu um when it was shut down um but it's hard to answer your question, but all I know is that the Shinchanji services are held in th this humongous, massive space where they are like kneeling or sitting right next to each other, um, shouting, screaming, um, and like praying. And like, yeah. you know, the spit is flying everywhere, <laughs> everything's sweating. Um, My so mom showed me videos, like she was like flipping out like it, it straight up looked like a military like like a service or something like they had like guards like, like with flags and like doing all these like chants and like it was it's it extreme was wild. Yeah. yeah it was extreme for real yeah it's extreme but also it's so mundane and it's ubiquitous it's everywhere um and even though like a lot of media portrayed shinchenji as this like kind of demonizing like force it's actually like i think what i was most surprised about is that how people i knew were in, impacted because they knew people who were part of shinchanji mm. and were um active in these groups and a lot of them said that shinchanji kind of targets people like on the streets 
um, people who are more vulnerable, maybe who are, you know, lonely, having a hard time. And then they say, Hey, like, come in, we will give you that community. Um, and a lot of the, like Shinjunji people, like I've, I've been approached by Shinjunji people on the streets um, in Seoul. And they ask like, Hey, do you want to study English with us? <laughs> that's, that's a common like opener for them. Yeah. It, it kind of reminds me of, uh, I was approached several times by these kind of like, kind of pyramid scheme-esque thing. And they specifically kind of target like hip millennials and they like try to get you into like reading books with them and like doing all this stuff. And I kind of just feel like it's very similar to what you're describing because a lot of them are pretty well-intentioned. Like I wouldn't say that they're, trying to be malicious in any way it's just that they're like they found a lot of purpose in this and then their group is like go find more people and you're like all right cool let me go find some more people and and yeah it's definitely a definitely not as not as demonized as as a lot of people can make it yeah i think the new york times new york times bureau chief chosung like um he the bureau chief reported on a piece about how shinchenji has like um broken a lot of families in south korea which is a sad read mm -hmm. but it's everywhere honestly <laughs> um, which is why when it exploded it, it exploded as it did um but i don't know i think another important like another interesting discourse at surface was that um what if it was like like the presbyterian sect you know the mainstream presbyterian sect like would the social stigma have been as bad in korea um or would it would it have been portrayed in such a like a an extreme light. Um, oh, you're saying like if, if a Presbyterian church was the one that like had that big spread happen? Yeah, or like, you know, like a main, more mainstream religious mm -hmm. sect. Like yeah, yeah. But it was Shincheonji, which is like kind of an outlier in the, you know. Almost like people were fiending for, for a reason to like get them. Um, yeah, it was like right for a story. Yeah. So if I'm understanding correctly, so basically how they were contributing to like increasing the spread of the coronavirus was they despite a lot of them being infected and a lot of the city being infected they were still going to like these large gatherings in inside their uh their church i guess you can call it and just holding service as normal is that what was going on yeah they defied a lot of the government's recommendations mm -hmm. uh, they still held their group meetings worship services um in in secrecy um, yeah, they just didn't follow the rules. And that's that's been the problem with a lot of churches here in Korea. And yeah. I'm Christian, but I've been kind of like ashamed to say I'm Christian here right now in this atmosphere. Really? Because um, of how the churches are not following the rules. And, you know, like in Korea, this is a kind of a sweeping generalization. But in general, um, a lot of the kind of um, devout Christian groups are linked to the anti Moon Jae-in, the president, and the more like right-wing groups. And so they've kind of merged as this big group. So on Liberation Day, which was in mid-August, um, August 15th, um, in Central Seoul, there's a humongous rally, an anti Moon Jae-in rally, led by this kind of notorious pastor. And that led to what's being deemed as like the new wave of coronavirus infections. Um, uh, 
So again, like it was Shincheonji, which is a religious group, and then it was this group that was protesting. Goodness. <laughs> yeah, the churches are just uh, they're not getting a good rap here. Um, yeah. So I don't know too much about that. So anti Munje, the president. Yeah, the president. And that's like a right wing sect of politics. So the Moon Jae-in, he, Moon Jae-in president for the Democratic Party and a lot of the people from the People Power Party, which is the right wing, the like uh, the more centrist right wing group, um, the I guess the more conservative group, they, um, they were having a rally against the current president. Um, and that led to a humongous explosion in cases again. Mm. Uh, so we thought that South Korea recovered, but then this happened and it exploded again. And so a lot of people were upset. Oh, was that the, the peak that they, they had maybe like a month ago? I mean, it wasn't that much of a peak, but it definitely like, I saw a, a spike. Yeah, hmm. it was a spike. And I was really scared because I was like, oh my gosh, like the numbers are increasing faster than they were in Shincheonji, like when Shincheonji was happening. Wow. Um, so the government implemented another like, I think it was like level 2.5 um, social distancing measures. So, you know, like groups were capped at 10. Um, a lot of the public facilities closed again. If it was like deja vu, I thought, you know, Shinchenji thing was going to happen again. Mm. Um, but thankfully, the numbers kind of have calmed down a bit. Um, I wish I could say the same. I don't know if y'all been looking at USA and Texas, but man, I looked at Texas, I think a couple days ago, we spiked to 17,000 new cases from like 2,000 like the week before like mm -hmm. I'm like I guess I'm never gonna leave my house I'm just gonna <laughs> I'm just gonna hole up shop here. I think a lot of that is probably from Labor Day yeah Labor Day for sure yeah. and schools too and schools, schools opening yeah it's crazy um so I feel like in in Korea at least just from what I've heard and read um Koreans are definitely more like I don't know if obedient is the right word, but I'll just say it. like obedient to like government regulations in terms of like when they pass down certain rules and regulations that you have to follow to slow the virus. I feel like there's a much more like law abiding attitude that Koreans hold and they're more willing to like partake for the greater good. Do you feel that? Do you, do you feel that when you're, you know, now that you're like in Korea, do you think that's true? Yeah. I actually talked to like a, I think it was a professor at Seoul National University about this question that you just asked me. Yeah. Um, about kind of weighing the communal good versus individual privacy. And in South Korea, like what the expert told me was that in South Korea, this is in my house, South Korea flattened the coronavirus curve piece for NBC News, but he kind of touches on how in South Korea, he conducted this survey on this very topic. Um, and the results, I can't remember the exact numbers, but in, in a nutshell, it said, it concluded that Koreans in general tend to value, they are willing to sacrifice their individual privacy for the sake of preserving communal good. And obviously, I don't think that's the case in the United States right now. Um, mm -hmm. um, I, there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal that talked about how South Koreans are, like you said, obedient and law-abiding citizens. Um, but that piece also, also actually faced a lot of backlash because, um, and I, I wasn't a fan of the piece either, 
because I felt like it was saying that, oh, it kind of played into the stereotype that Asians are um, innately obedient mm -hmm. and good at like the like the model minority stereotype. Exactly. And I felt like that piece, while maybe not bad intention, was unconsciously um, playing into that model minority stereotype of Asians being naturally obedient. Mm. And, and I think that piece was like, oh, it's because of like Confucianism, Confucianism and like its role in Asian culture and the mindsets. But I, I, I think it's because the system was efficient. It's not because Asians are like innate obedient. Mm. Because the system was set up, um, Koreans, the Korean um, disaster agency, um, the KDCA, they were ready and they had these like mock pandemic exercises, um, I think in December, January, around then. And they were just prepared and they acted fast. And um, I think it's it has to do with more of that and how they set up these testing centers so fast, made tests accessible and affordable um and they had a great test trace um testing and tracing um the digital tracking efforts were really efficient too mm. um and sure like yeah maybe south koreans were better at following the rules but that's only one component of a greater system i think yeah i i heard a lot about uh, like the digital tracking how if you're like infected then they have like a tracking um, or they can like track your cell phone. Right. And, um, anytime like you leave your house during the, the quarantine period, they like will come and get you. Um, which I think from like, uh, like an American lens that would like never fly in the U S you know, that would be a total, like people would just be going, they'd be like, they'd be going crazy and talking about like, Oh, big brother, or like, you know, totally invading our personal freedom. Uh, mm -hmm. but I like the point you brought up about like, it's not that they're obedient. I mean, they are, may, they may be a little more law abiding, but it's because they actually trust in the system because it works. Um, good more point. than anything. Yeah. And whereas in the U S, um, I don't really know what our system is, you know, um, <laughs> cause we can't really even, we can't even agree that masks should be worn. It's cool to see how like the citizens and the people living here keep themselves in check um because you know if if you're not wearing a mask in the subway rather than the authorities people other people around you will say hey like put on a mask what are you doing <laughs> um, and so yeah it's cool to see how people keep themselves in check and keep things operating and going um yeah but people still everyone wears masks here even though numbers are pretty low it's just become it's just the way of life here and people have accepted the fact, they've calmly accepted the fact that this is how we're gonna roll for a while. <laughs> yeah. So you did some uh, you did some work or some journalism pieces on sex workers in Korea and like, especially during COVID, I don't know if that's the right terminology, sex workers, but you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, so I didn't do a piece like specifically on sex workers. So in Western, I think in a lot of Western society, they're known as like, um, adult entertain adult entertainment workers or you know sex workers but um, in Korean at least the sex worker that I interviewed um, she said that in Korean if you directly translated she'd like to be referred to as a sex seller 
And that's that doesn't sound as familiar in Western discourse, but mm. I asked her why. And she says that um, seller, the act of selling kind of gives her the agency as the person who chooses to sell her services. Um, and she was saying that like work, sex worker, like in Korean language, like working, there's kind of like an almost condescending connotation with like laboring, mm. working. Um, so she refers to herself as a sex seller. Um, so, and that, that varies among each sex seller, sex worker. Um, but, but the person that I interviewed for the COVID piece um, said that she prefers that term. But yeah, I just spoke to her about, I spoke to her when things were kind of, after Shincheonji and how things were kind of plateauing a bit and calming down. Um, and pe that's when the term like post-COVID, post-coronavirus new normal started surfacing. Um, and a lot of people were saying that, oh, now that Shincheonji, those numbers are going down, like we're in a new normal. Um, and people were feeling more, less anxious for sure. But then the new normal, it's a different reality for different kinds of people. And so I just talked to her about what's her new normal and what's the new normal like for um, people in that industry. Um, and it was interesting, like, um, like the government, they're kind of, okay, so I guess I'll start by saying that like sex work in Korea is really a strange turf because it's like an open illegality. Um, it's illegal, but everyone does it and everyone knows it's happening and it's out in the open. When I went to the red, when I went to the red light district in central Seoul, northern central Seoul, um, there was like a shop, a humongous like shopping mall and like a police station office. And then like a huge red light district where if you kind of walk down, there are two sides of the road and kind of like glass cases where scantily clad women are standing there and oh my goodness. asking like to, for people to come in. And um, they're just out in the open, like just standing there and people will walk by, look at, women go inside if they want those services um and i'm just like and when i went there i went alone and one of the pimps thought i was a sex worker and he mm. was like why aren't you working and i was like oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> oh, god. <laughs> uh, that was really scary it was honestly really no. scary um i was just like shocked at like how and i think a statistic i'm not getting it right but it was like one in three or one in four men in south korea have paid for sex um and so when i saw that statistic and went to the red light district i was like wow wow just wow i can't believe mm. i still like this um and so the sex worker i was talking to was saying that like after the coronavirus though a lot of these um sex sellers are suffering a lot because they're, the work that they do is so physical. And so, you know, in coronavirus, we're a touch, we're really sensitive to like just breathing next to each other or touching each other. Um, so they're really struggling and um, the s sales have obviously plummeted. And so um, a lot of them are, yeah, not in, the, not in the best position right now. And so that's kind of what I talked to her about the COVID piece. So what exactly is the, uh, the red light district? I'm not familiar with that term. 
there are lots of shades. There are many shades of South Korea's like red light districts. The one that I went to was kind of extreme. I think like like literally seeing the women like on display, mm-hmm. objectified like that. Um, at the same time, I want to respect their agency because it's their choice to do that. Um, but besides those kinds of spaces, um, there are like Norebang singing rooms where um, it says singing room, but when you go, you can request these services and like women, like call girls will come out and accompany you. Um, there's those kinds of spaces. There are like room salons, same thing. Yeah, they're just everywhere. That's deep, deeply ingrained in the culture, it seems. Deeply ingrained in the drinking culture, the social culture. Um, it's just normality and people don't talk about it, but one does it. I remember when um, that whole Big Bang scandal came out. What was that, like a year or two ago? Um, what was the name of it? It was like, uh, what was the name of that nightclub? It was like Sun, Burning Sun. Yeah, Burning Sun nightclub scandal with, uh, like, with Big Bang or a couple members of Big Bang or just one person, right? Wasn't it? Um, what's his name? Yeah, Sungmi. Yeah, so Sungmi from Big Bang. When that whole scandal came out, like, that was such a big deal. Um, but m- me personally, and I don't know if this is like messed up, but I wasn't like that shocked, you know, because just because of the culture of grace, like what you were saying, like sex workers and how easily you can access them. Like imagine like what celebrities and rich people are doing just to like, you know, they probably have access to like the most beautiful women in in South Korea. And it's like up until they got caught or until they got the whistle blown against them, like, they probably didn't think they were doing anything wrong, to be completely honest. And I feel like a lot of like rich, powerful, like businessmen and celebrities in Korea still probably don't think it's the wrong, like it's, it's wrong what they're doing, you know, it's because it's so like a deep part of the culture. And, and I, and and I am aware to a certain extent, like the culture of just like very light punishments for like sexual offenses uh, for men for committing those kind of acts in South Korea. Um, Have you like observed anything like that in your reporting or just like, just in your, like uh, in your time being in South Korea? Yeah. So the burning sun scandal, there was like a series of all of this and it kind of exploded during the Me Too movement and also like burning sun, the nth room scandal. um, And most recently, like, um, Welcome to World. Have you guys heard of that by chance? No. Yeah, so Welcome to World is like um, this guy named Son Jong-woo, who's really young, like almost my age. He's like 24. He ran this kind of like digital torture chamber um, in, in like that um, exploited minors and made them do really terrible like sexual acts. Um, and he like that world yeah that kind of like space he operated was welcome to world and um in july despite that he so it was the world's largest child sexual exploitation market okay um he on july 6th or something like that he walked he walked out as a free man wait what he he was like uh charged and then he just walked yeah he just walked out on july 6th he walked out as a free man out of the out of the prison and um i remember seeing this on twitter and i wrote this i wrote a piece for vice on this issue because i was so upset um 
but his sentence was the same sentence handed to another South Korean man who was convicted of stealing 18 eggs. Um, they were charged the same weight. And, oh um, wow. <laughs> and so the piece that I write for World Revice was kind of assessing, I was just curious. I was like, how did this happen? And how, like, what is the South Korean like criminal justice system like to like mm-hmm. condone this and make it okay? And so it's it, the piece itself is kind of complicated. So maybe you guys can link it um, in this in, link it somewhere. But basically, um, I just talk about how there's a systemic, like th- there's like a system and there's a history of light sentencing towards um, sexual offenders, and like how the how legally like how this is shaped, and how the parts of it have not changed and why Son jong was able to get away with this. Um, but yeah, and that, that happened. And then the mayor, the Seoul mayor, Park Won-jun, he, who recently committed suicide, he, um, right, right before he committed suicide, his secretary had come out saying that she was sexually harassed by him for years. Um, and that also like further um, led to the explosion of um, the discourse on sexual assault and um, yeah so a lot of events happened <laughs> recently um, and my goodness back- so I, I actually I'm not I mean I knew that the the soul the mayor of Seoul like killed himself and he had like those harassment charges against him but like what um, like how severe were the charges and do you think he would have been charged? Like it was, was it bad? Was it that bad to the point where do you think he would have like gotten in a lot of trouble? I don't know, but I, I'm inclined to say no because he's, he was a very powerful person and I was sad because I liked Park Won-Zoon and he was, he comes from a human rights mm. law background and actually, it's ironic and really sad that the country, South Korea's um, first court case on sexual harassment took place 28 years ago. And ironically, like that case was led by Park Won-soon. Wow. Um, and so the fact that these, um, that allegedly, and I, I'm inclined to believe the survivor that he um, sexually harassed her for years and um, sent her inappropriate photos, touched her, made her feel uncomfortable. Um, and then, yeah, very complicated because it's sad that, you know, he killed himself, but a lot of um, South Korean feminist circles kind of say that, but how would this make the victim feel? Because now that mm-hmm. her, the person she accused is dead, her charges have basically disappeared. Um, and she can't do anything because he's dead. <laughs> um, so yeah, that that discourse is still going, um, and there are a lot of criticisms against South Korea's criminal justice law system. Um, but I think it goes to show how the cultural remains are still deeply embedded in modern Korean perceptions today, um, and how women are still objectified. Um, but the, there, there is pushback, and I, I conclude my vice piece with this, saying that um, actually, like um, advocates are being more vocal, 
and they're calling for modifying public policy regarding these issues. And in May, actually, the, there is an act on the protection of children and youth against sex offenses. And one good news was that that was actually revised. And um, so basically like pornography was replaced to be referred to as obscene content um, and sexually exploitative mm -hmm. content. Um, so the new term, like advocates have told me that um, it doesn't frame the people, usually women, displayed in these photos as active participants, but as people mm. who are exploited. Um, so mm. the good thing is that, you know, beginning with like language and discourse, it is changing a bit, but we have a long way to go. That's interesting that you, that you cite cultural remains. Like, do you have thoughts on how this became so deeply ingrained? Like how, how, why is the government like this? Why are, men in power and just i would say the public perception of women so objectified like how did how did we get here <laughs> oh it's a big question we could say the same for like america like, yeah well, <laughs> that's true that's true yeah <laughs> gosh with trump like grabbing yeah. them oh gosh um, yeah, very true God. yeah i mean I, so in my vice piece i kind of mentioned i think one cool part of the piece was like um one of my sources i talked to they talk about this um, idea of unjangdo, and unjangdo, like it's basically um, a historical term from the old times that unjangdo is like a small silver knife, and it's said to have been worn. So the women would put it in the chest pocket of their clothes in case they need to like protect their virginity. Um, and so that, I think that mindset, even though it's outdated, it's still very much alive today. Um, like the preservation of women, like keeping them pure, preserving their virginity. Um, and, you know, a lot of the, I mean, this is just my opinion, but a lot of like even young girls, South Koreans, like um, they still very much abide to the gender roles and stereotypes that are assigned to them a man should do this, a woman should do this by the time she's in her mid twenties, by the time mm. she's 30. Um, but yeah, that, those kinds of old, those kinds of ideas are very much alive today. Mm. Um, yeah. And that's, I, I, I don't think I can answer your question because I, I could talk for like a day um, <laughs> <laughs> about why this <laughs> Well, you see progress, though. You see, you see advocates. You see pushback. I do see pushback, but it's one one person who refers to herself as a feminist told me it's dangerous to refer yourself to refer to yourself as a feminist openly, um, because people will like smack you in the face. Because there's such a there's a really bad image of feminism in Korea, and it's they're definitely a social minority, and they are not welcomed in mainstream circles. Um, like what? How are they seen? Well, a lot of male groups um, frame them as violent and unproductive and um, just have a really strong aversion to people who refer to themselves as feminists. Um, so I think a lot of feminists that I know can't vocally say that they're feminists. Um, yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> it's pretty bad. I, when... Um... So when like that Burning Sun scandal came out and then also um, with 
the sexual harassment charges against Park Wonsoon, I was a little more, you know, I was a little more surprised that those charges were actually like, they actually surfaced because um, I think Korea is still very behind in terms of just like women's rights and gender equality. Um, because I, I mean, I didn't know that they were so shunned in the social perspective in, in Korea, but I do know that in, in large that the gender roles and also taking women seriously is still, they're still way behind in South Korea compared to the U S. Um, so I see that in and of itself as a form of progress, if you know what I mean? Like just the fact that these charges are like being taken seriously. Yeah. I think it did spark a lot of important discourse. Um, but what I've observed is that even a lot of South Korean women are reluctant to engage in this discourse and mm. don't want to. And they view, some women um, that I've talked to view feminists as dangerous. Mm. And um, there's a lot of pushback mm. from not just men, but also women who don't agree with these ideas. Um, they're, the feminists in Korea are kind of, from the people I've talked to, are kind of painted as like radical, violent extremists. Um, that's like kind of the image. Mm. Um, but I do think that through movies, through books, through the arts, that, that this discourse is moving forward slowly. Mm. Well, since you speak with feminists, I mean, I feel like you would have a more grounded idea of who they really are and what they stand for. So would you say that people are more so just disagreeing and against the idea of like how they're portrayed or is it their actual ideas? Feminists I've spoken to are just angry and rightfully so. Um, I think that maybe because their instinct is to be angry at the system that is made against them, they're portrayed as like violent. Mm. Um, but there are a lot of like cool NGOs in this circle that are doing a lot of good work too. Um, like the person that I spoke to for the Park One Zoom case, I'm trying to pull up the name of her organization because they do a lot of good work. Like there are like there are like groups that are advance um, like female hackers, female coders. Yeah, there are these groups in Korea, and they're like small but growing pretty fast and like mm. one of the they talked to for the vice piece she worked at like a cybersexual violence group that um works with victims and survivors of digital trafficking and violence um and you know there there are these safe spaces and circles but they are just still pretty small um but it's cool to see how they're growing at the same time. You've been doing a lot. Um, you know, I would like, you know, at least one of your final thoughts. I, I think it's really interesting to hear the perspective of someone in journalism. And especially since you're younger and transitioning from that perspective of all your news is from news and then digging into the stories yourself, talking to these people like, like, what, what would you say? How has that been for you? Like, like how has journalism exposed different sects of reality for you? Mm -hmm. I was always interested in Korea, you know, the Koreas, 
when I was in the States, but I, I think I'm really just really grateful to be here and be able to go to Daegu, to go to these red light districts and like people. And um, I, I'm, I'm lacking in a lot of ways. I'm young, I'm not that experienced. Um, my Korean's not 100% fluent, but I, I'm, I think at the end of the day, I'm just really grateful towards my sources and the people who let me talk to them and share their stories with me um, and trust me with their stories. Um, a lot of the times, like I become good friends with the people that I talk to with stories. Um, but it's been interesting navigating like the media landscape as a Korean American. Um, and, you know, <laughs> I think one thing that's kind of funny is that a lot of people, I don't know how they do it. Maybe it's like my winged eyeliner, but they look at me. I don't even open my mouth. They're like, when did you come to Korea? Where in the States are you? <laughs> how did you know? Um, and they kind of look me up and down and they know. And they were just like, oh, you know, I just had a feeling. The kim in Korea means like a feeling. Yeah. Um, and there are stereotypes against Yopos or overseas Koreans as being like party animals or pr privileged. I mean, a lot of us are privileged because our parents went to the States. Um, but navigating that in-betweenness of, um, I mean, and this is a lot of people have talked about this, but you know, like looking, expect people expect you to speak Korean fluently, but you don't. Um, and you know, in the, I've, I'm in some like, you know, foreigner and expat communities here, but to them, I look Korean and it's just kind of, the, the waters are very gray mm -hmm. as like great American sometimes. Um, and that's kind of hard to navigate sometimes because um, sources are like, man, you don't even speak fluent Korean, why should I trust you? But I think it just takes a lot of time and patience. And um, especially like me, if you're not, 100% fluent in language, you have to put in the work and spend time with local communities um, to make up for that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, like I said earlier, I was supposed to be home by now in Dallas. <laughs> um, but I'm still here. And I think, um, I don't know where God wants me, but I, I, I do see myself here for at least a bit um, and continuing to well, I'm copy editing now. The freelance market was really rough in May. And so I wasn't doing that well financially. Um, so I took on this part-time copy editing job. So um, I'm doing that while kind of taking a break from reporting, um, but I'm doing some video producing too. So I don't know, all in all, it's been good. Like I'm grateful for the flexibility that mm. I've been granted. Hmm. It sounds like you've, uh... You've been doing some pretty powerful things with your time over there. Yeah. So. Eating. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, I think, you know, I, I've read some of your pieces prior to this, um, you know, this conversation. And I think just hearing you dive more into what you've reported on, um, I think just from someone who in general um, does, has like a lot of trust issues with the media, uh, I appreciate your form of journalism. So I uh, just want to throw that out there. Um, mm. But I'm just curious to, to uh, you know, before we close out, I'm just curious. I think Josh kind of already asked you, but it's like, um, what are some important like life, life lessons you've 
learned through journalism, like, you know, or some different convictions or, um, you know, just like shift in perspective that you've experienced um, while you've been covering these stories. I'd love to hear that uh, before we close. Yeah, I, I think the one takeaway is just, and I think this can be applied to not just people in the media, but just people who interact with other people is that um, it always helps to just listen first. And I love asking questions um, rather than kind of interjecting your own. Um, I think to you need to take off your shoes first to be able to do this. And it's really hard to do that. Um, but journalism has given me the patience to take off my own shoes first and then listening and then kind of keeping the discourse going. Um, kind of like you guys do in your podcast, honestly. Um, but I don't know, I've interacted with a lot of people that I would have never interacted with, mm -hmm. like ex-former Shincheonji people, um, people in the medical field, like just a lot of different kinds of people. And um, yeah, I don't know. It's just, um, I think what drives my journalism is at the end of the day, curiosity. Um, and I think it's always important to just stay curious and um, Honestly, in journalism, I usually play dumb in the beginning. And I just assume I'm dumb. <laughs> I, just, I don't know anything. Yeah. So I need sources to take my hand and lead me to where, I, where you know, somewhere else. And so um, I think it's obviously like it's important to be confident, but also I think it's good to assume that you don't know everything um, and that... Um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I just assume I'm dumb before I write any story. And then I talk to my sources <laughs> and I'm like, thank you. <laughs> I'm never going to say humble again. I'm going to say pretend like you're dumb. I just, I just tell myself <laughs> I am dumb and I need to talk to these so that they can help me you know, you know, actually, that actually aligns a lot with being like water. You know what I mean? Just uh, putting yourself in different mm -hmm. um, environments and just, I don't know, just taking the form of anything you know and just assuming assuming his form so that's pretty cool <laughs> and yo you had a um an article that uh or not an article but it was like a, a project with the wall street journal that was retweeted by andrew yang the south korea one yeah i was super surprised um that andrew yang retweeted it i mean he was in it so maybe that's why but um, mm. yeah, for, it was my first time working with the Wall Street Journal and um, one of the very few um, video projects because I usually write, but it was a, a short doc kind of a short video on um, there is an area in Korea called Gyeonggi province. So Gyeonggi province is rolling out this kind of um, universal basic income project. So that, that's what it was about. Mm. So, so can you go a little bit more into it? So like what's going on with it? Is it, is it going well? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a pretty, in my opinion, radical experiment. And the fundamental idea behind it is that everyone who lives in Gyeonggi province is a resident there. They receive about $217 every three months. No questions asked. Mm. Um, and the program, the project is called Gyeonggi Pay. And it's basically a cash payout system um, based on the universal basic income concept where um, residents of Gyeonggi 
um, regardless of how much money they make or what they do as a living, they're indefinitely given this sum of money to, with the ultimate goal being to help reduce inequality and poverty. And um, this system was expanded during coronavirus because the economy, the local economy especially, was struggling so much. So, mm. um, but the interesting thing that I think this is why the video is so popular is that one catch of this pay system was that um, the recipients of this program have, can only spend the money locally because the goal is to stimulate the local economy. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So um, we interviewed this, we interviewed a girl and she was like, oh yeah, I, when I spent it, like I couldn't buy things um, at like my local McDonald's chain. Like she couldn't spend her money there. So she, instead she um, spent a lot of time at the local Shijang or market um, and then um, the video also highlighted like two subsets of this program, um, the coronavirus stimulus payment program um, to help people um, down on their luck during coronavirus. And then the youth basic income, which um, distributes like about 250,000 um, for for all 24 year olds in Gyeonggi province. Um, so, yeah, that's what it was about. I need to move to Gyeonggi province, it looks like. <laughs> That's so dope, though. How did it feel to have your project retweeted by somebody that big? That's so cool. Um, it was pretty surreal. And what was funny was that um, I think one of them, because we also, I also got the um, opportunity to talk to Governor um, Lee Jae-myung, who is a Gyeonggi governor. And he's also a press, he's vying for a presidential spot in the next election mm. and I think they were like having a conversation in the tweet thread which is really funny Andrew Yang, <laughs> Lee Jae Myung. <laughs> but um, I, I don't know I think overall the reception was really really positive and I think people really appreciated kind of the trickle-down effect this project has because ultimately it's a win-win system because people are granted a bit of financial leeway during a really difficult time. And that then like a cycle boosts the local business and also the local community, because um, especially young people, um, one of the sources said started to interact with the local community a lot more. Um, mm. And if Lee Myung becomes president, I can say I interview the president. <laughs> <laughs> That's sick. I love it. Well, shoot. Grace, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. Um, really enjoyed this. I got to dig into into these articles that you've written. I read I read some of them, but I haven't read all of these. So I would say um, before we end it, if you have any like just closing thoughts, maybe even like I don't know anything that you want to say, and also just plug some of your favorite pieces. I want you to plug some of your favorite pieces and maybe like organizations that you dig and we'll make sure to, to post that as well. Uh, yeah, I don't know if anyone just wants to connect, um, chat, have a phone call about if you're interested in living in South Korea, if you're interested in like freelancing journalism, um, I'm an experience, but I can share what I've been through at, at the least. Um, you can reach me. I like, <laughs> I'm old school and I love email. Hey. I'm really bad at responding on social media. Um, so my email is grace, G-R-A-C-E, Toyon, S-O-Y-E-O-N, moon, M-O-O-N, all one word at gmail.com. So just shoot me a line there. Um, 
can add me on Facebook, um, follow me on Twitter, Grace and Moon, um, some organizations. I mean, honestly, like I just want to say that I wouldn't be where I am without the Asian American Journalists Association. And I began my journey there in New York and I'm still involved in the Seoul and Asia chapter. Um, so if you're an entry-level journalist or just a journalist who wants a community, I really highly recommend AJA. Um, yeah, that's it. Um, oh, and then pieces. Um, honestly, my favorite piece is that Buddha Chiga piece. Um, mm. cried, that sounded powerful. I cried so much writing that piece, and I'm really proud of like um, the final product. And my grandma also really liked it. I had to translate it into Korean for her, but um, yeah. And there's also a recipe. So if you like to cook, hey. you can make it. Um, so that's on Food 52. And besides that, I'd say my second and third pieces that I'm proud of are um, the Vice one on that, that I co-reported with my friend on South Korea's light sentencings. And then um, one I wrote for BBC on um, South Korean youth pushing back against the workplace traditions. Um, yeah, mm. those are some pieces that I enjoyed writing. Um, well, I'm sure uh, we we're might enjoy reading. Hey, we might need a part two. <laughs> so we'll be we'll be in touch. Yeah, that was good. I I wish we could have dug yeah, deeper into some in of touch. these. Yeah, for uh, sure. I hope it's okay. I just feel like I rambled. Do y'all have to that? <laughs> I think you did just fine. Yeah, well, thanks again, Grace, so much for your time. Um, I learned so much just in this short time. I hope our, our listeners, anyone else who's listening, uh, hope they learned, um, you know, hope they learned something, took something out of this. Um, and yeah, thank you everyone for tuning in. This is another episode of Sound the Water Podcast, and uh, we'll see you next time. Peace out. Peace. Be water, my friend.